Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pat and John on their best behavior. I'm John. And I'm Pat. And uh, we have a very special, exciting episode for you uh, today, but just a quick order of business. Um, Pat, are you are you sad right now? Always. Well, yeah, I, I yeah, mean, always, I know that, yeah, but, yeah. But like in particular, this week, have you yes, have you felt yourself? Yes, yes. I, I think I know what that accounts for, or I think I know what accounts for that rather. What I think what, that what uh, I do. I think our last episode, <gasps> in which we talked, we explored, we did a deep dive into the world of emo music, may have um, put you in a particularly contemplative, somber, somber mode, um, from which you may from which you may never return um who's to say really but right and and also my license changed from pennsylvania to new hampshire after i <laughs> after i after the episode was completed yeah. yeah yeah um yeah it's like a sort of freaky friday situation although i have not <laughs> thankfully my 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 license has not changed to pittsburgh um i don't even know what bullshit is going on i i imagine the pittsburgh licenses are very flimsy is that accurate no they're made of real steel because I don't know um, if you know this, John, but Pittsburgh gave uh, the the steel to win the war against right, uh, the right, Axis right, right. powers. Right, which, right. As yes, it was provided by. Um, which, if you live in Pittsburgh, you're reminded of that every day. Right, right. It was it was provided by the the Carnegie Stanley uh, uh, clan. Um, well, um, if you too would like to be put into your feels uh, by uh, by the genre that we lovingly and correctly on this podcast referred to as emo music um you should check out uh last week's episode which we've been hearing really uh really nice things about i we appreciate everyone who has gotten in touch with us about that um, people love the game people love people, i was people gonna say love people the game. really love the segment um we uh we i put out a little um what's it called a little poll on my instagram uh, in which I asked people to predict how Pat would do on the segment, which if you want to know more about, you can listen to the episode. Um, and overwhelmingly, I think it was like 90%, like 88% of people um, predicted that Pat would flunk it. Um, so I don't know what that says about... They their... said I'd flunk it because I just dropped out of school, so... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were like, yes. if this guy can't handle real academics, how is he going to handle fake yeah, academics? Yeah. Right. I would say it's real, just in a different way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, check out that episode. And uh, if you haven't yet, please follow us on Instagram uh, at Pat and John on their best behavior. And of course, uh, rate and review the podcast. We we always appreciate hearing from folks and uh, engaging with folks in that way. Oh, and um, the, uh, oh, go the ahead. first Pat and John short film has been cast. Hell yeah. It has been cast and there is a shot list. And are some of are some of the uh, the the actors equity? Any any equity uh, going on there? No. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know. I'm not paying not those know. union fees, John. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We have lots of feelings about that on this podcast. Um, so do do stay tuned for that. But speaking of academics, on today's episode, we this is probably the first episode in which we are delving into some sort of like scholarly topic scholarly piece um and actually have uh someone we might identify as a scholar wouldn't on, go that uh, far but <laughs> well that's for us to decide and yeah. for our listeners to well decide. i will say this it's the first thing over 10 pages that i've read in five years so yes yeah yep yeah. and uh, before you reading um 
uh, the Knozgard uh, piece um, last week. It was the first piece over ten pages that we discussed on this on this podcast because um, my poetry certainly doesn't doesn't uh, fit that bill. Mm. Um, but we are here to discuss uh, a really wonderful piece of well, we'll have our author decide or he'll, we'll, have, we'll have we'll have him categorize it. Um, but a really a really wonderful piece of writing um, and. Um, we have on the podcast um, a uh, we don't really actually we didn't we didn't go over what 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 your title what's your, what your title? title is what's your uh, title I don't know I uh, I guess I'm a writer and a podcaster I suppose but um, hell yeah we call that the Lord's work <laughs> yeah that's, that's that's what we call the Lord's work um, awesome well we have writer podcaster Spencer Ryder welcome Hi. to the podcast Spencer thank you for having me on. We're so excited to have you. Yeah. Um, so we decided to have Spencer. You have on a great because... writer name. Yeah, that is true. That you is could true. also be an actor with that name too. You know. Thank you. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we uh, we we decided to have Spencer on because a couple months ago, um, Pat and I stumbled upon a piece that Spencer had published in um, a magazine called uh, Negation Mag um, that uh, Pat and I were both really struck by. Um, it it really brought together a lot of stuff that like Pat and I have often discussed off the pod and, and maybe in some cases we've talked about on the pod as well. Um, but we just thought it was really all really exp- expressed like very um, succinctly and thoroughly um, and with a lot of great like examples and precision um so we decided to have have spencer on the podcast to uh, to talk about it um mm. but, but i guess before we, we delve into that why don't you tell us a little bit about uh who you are and what you do spencer um i'm uh spencer uh <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's it's kind of weird uh describing what i do since uh i do a bunch of different things uh i'm i used to be more active on twitter but i stopped doing that because just didn't you're smart yeah didn't want to do it anymore um (laughs) uh i what i do now is i write a lot of stuff on letterboxd i write stuff for websites like negation magazine every now and then um not too often i what i mostly do now actually is you know, it's funny because this piece is, at least by my standards, fairly scholarly, but uh, most of what I do is I talk about bad TV with a couple of my friends mm-hmm. on my own show, uh, Those Good Old Fashioned Values, which is a mm-hmm. show where we we uh, dive in and give try to explain um, bad animated television shows like, you know, Family Guy or, you know, forgotten stuff like Alan Gregory. But um, I don't know. I I, I, mm-hmm. I guess I would consider myself uh, a writer of sorts, a podcaster, and uh, uh, just having just be on the computer, I guess. <laughs> sure. You you writing like substantial scholarly pieces like the one we're going to discuss today, and then giving yourself permission to go like do the other stuff is like um, it's like Robert Pattinson. Yeah. Uh, doing really one like, for doing, me, one for yeah, you. Precisely yeah. doing doing cool. Um, you know, indie films. Uh, and then once he does that for a little while, feeling like he has to like pay his debt, um, literally probably pay his debts, uh, and then yeah. do, you know, something along the lines of Tenet or Batman or whatever. So really mm. like at the end of the day, you're kindred spirits in, uh, in more ways than one, I feel. Ah, uh, thank you. And you are currently, uh, you are currently a student. Yes. yes? Uh, Emerson college. Um, 
It's a place that has uh, given birth to uh, a lot of the greatest posters on Twitter, and uh, that's as far as I'm going to go. <laughs> um, uh, Pat, that is a school that's in, you, you'll be you'll be very sad to hear, is in um, Massachusetts. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Although, I think you would like that school, because, because here's the deal. Um, it's not it's not Harvard, which you wouldn't do well at for, you know, obvious reasons. If there's gl- great inflation, I'll go. <laughs> right, and I was going to say, it's not BU, which you also wouldn't do well at, not for academic reasons, but because, you know, there are over 5,000. There are too many people. Yeah, too yeah. many people there. The um, gym is crowded. <laughs> the gym is very crowded. They have good sports teams there. Um, yeah, so Emerson, you, you might you might find a, a good a good home at. I feel like it's, Emerson is in a similar sort of world uh, to to. Did PTA that... go to Emerson, or did PTA, I make that up? PTA went to Emerson for a year, I think. Uh, PTA went to Emerson for okay. a year, and then he went to NYU. And the legend has it that he dropped out of NYU in the first week because he took a screenwriting class and uh, he submitted a page of David Mamet to the teacher. And uh, the teacher gave him a C plus or something, and uh, he was like, "All right, Incredible. I'm not going to learn anything here." So he uh, just uh, scrambled together a bunch of. He just got a bunch of gambling money and made some shorts. Sure, yeah. Pat. If people ask, that's the story of why you don't go to CMU anymore. Yes, you can For check my DraftKings account to prove <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> that is that that is canon. That is the official the official story. Um. Awesome. Well, let's just dive right into let's just dive into the piece. Um, uh, Spencer, let's have you read the opening paragraph of your piece, um, which is entitled. Um, I can't remember sure I get the exact title. Correct. Reject discourse. Embrace cinema. Yes. Reject discourse. Revitalize yes. cinema was the title. Um, See, I, I thought that was. Why did I say embrace? That's why. That's why I didn't want to uh, rely on my memory. Because the, the words are very important. The working title uh, that I just had, um, <laughs> my editors had to. I didn't plan to make it the actual uh, title, but my editor, I just kept it there long enough that my editors were starting to get confused. I, I called it Jokerification at first, and then, <laughs> then my uh, editors like this title's a little bit too much of a meme title. And sure. <laughs> it's like yeah. Coincidentally, coincidentally, yeah. that was almost the title of this podcast. So nice. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Kindred spirits. Truly. Um, but yeah, let's have you read the opening paragraph of that just to initiate um, us, sure. reinitiate us and, and uh, initiate our listeners into it. Let me just say right off the bat, and I will say this several times throughout the podcast, this piece is absolutely incredible and you should read it. Like you, the listener, should pause the podcast, read the piece um, because it really is, it is remarkable. Um, but just to give you a little amuse-bouche, um, Spencer, just read us the first paragraph, and then we'll go from there to talking about like the larger you know, sort of points you wanted to make with, with this piece. Mm. Sound good? All right. All right. Uh, the piece uh, goes like this. It may feel like it's been a small eternity, but it was just over a year ago that Joker premiered to an explosion of controversy, moral panic, and hype. In the seeming century that followed, you probably <laughs> saw it, and you probably have an opinion on it. More importantly, though, your opinion almost certainly includes some qualifier about Joker as a phenomenon, whether it's an incel film or a stealth anti-capitalist film, how ridiculous the backlash and controversy was, what that controversy says about the state of criticism, and so on. 
This is because Joker stopped being a movie and was transformed into a cultural signifier as soon as it came to theaters. Your thoughts about Joker didn't have anything to do with the fact that it's a dreary mediocrity because they're not supposed to. Rather, your opinion on Joker is supposed to be an extension of your fashion and politics, your way of proving your superiority over a cultural enemy, art solely for metatextual posturing. At some point in the past 10 years, studios fully realized the lucrative potential of incorporating the culture war, a nebulous term broadly referring to competing consumer choices disguised as moral political choices offered to smug liberals and agreed, aggrieved reactionaries into their marketing, and the ensuing effects on cinematic discourse have been disastrous. Okay, perfect. Pat, did that just give you flashbacks? Or not flashbacks, but did that just give you a sense of horror of, like, imagining me, like, asking my students to read something in my Zoom classes? I feel like that's, that's, that was the effect that probably <laughs> yeah, I could feel Yeah, I could feel the wheels coming off the car when you said yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. All right, well, so, Spencer, talk to us a little bit about sort of the, the origins of this piece and sort of, like, the broad points that you wanted to... Uh, that you wanted to, that that you wanted to and ultimately did end up making um, in in the execution of it. This piece, um, well, for starters, it was commissioned from a friend of mine who uh, wanted me to write about um, movies for his magazine, um, and I I wanted a way to tackle some of my frustrations with mainstream film culture, and uh, the angle I eventually took was that I was. I was really tired of, you know, basically having to relitigate Gamergate every year or so. Like every year <laughs> it felt like there was some film or some thing that uh came out and it like before we could even like finish talking about the piece itself. Like The Last Jedi is the go-to example. Like before we could even talk about like right. is The Last Jedi a good film, it quickly turned into this just uh it, it became a culture war before it became like an actual movie. Uh, it, and I, I was getting really exhausted with the phenomenon of where um, with all of these movies like, um, you know, Last Jedi and more recently Snyder Cut, uh, where hmm. you couldn't really talk about the text anymore because the text was irrelevant and it all just became about like, using this movie as a piece of like as a way to further your position in a broader cultural war and like to it's like a you know it's it's like a consumer it's a fashion accessory basically like the last jedi was a great example because yeah there were a lot of people who in order to express their superiority over like supposed internet reactionaries would pretend that it's like it's the best star wars movie it's great and some people (laughs) do hold that opinion of course but there were a lot of people who were like showering it with hyperbolic praise just to uh just to own some supposed enemy and on the flip side you have you know people who are like you know it's the worst movie ever blah 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 (laughs) blah and right it uh those people also like again i know a lot of people who do genuinely hate the last jedi but uh a lot of the cases it just seemed like this is our way of thumbing our you know thumbing our nose at social justice warriors or whatever and right, it just right. felt like we were doing this time and time and time again. Like we were doing this happened with Joker. Like I talked before, Joker became this thing where you couldn't really talk about the movie itself because your position on the movie wasn't supposed to be about the movie. It was supposed to be whether or not you think that this film is, uh, you know, signaling the incel uprising or if this film is secretly <laughs> about capitalism or whatever. And uh, it happened all the time. I remember yeah. 2016 uh, was a really bad year for this. Uh, we had 
Manchester by the Sea and La La Land, which I talked about later. And both of those films were just hit with, and Moonlight too, to some extent, were all just hit with these like discourse bombs that like none (laughs) of the films really could, uh, none of the films could really hold themselves. So I I was tired of it. And uh, when theaters closed down in uh, 2020, I found myself spending a lot of quarantine rather than trying to keep up with current releases. I went back and dove into the film canon more. And I found that a lot more rewarding because when you talk about like academic discussions about films, like, I don't know, uh, Johnny guitar or something, it's Hmm. not going to be, I mean, there's a few exceptions like star Wars, I guess, but like broadly, these films are going to be talked about, you know, about the actual text of the film and talk about it in ways that I find really interesting, like auteur analysis and, formalist analysis and thematic analysis and i uh i found this a lot more refreshing and you know as i don't know as the summer went on i started to realize like why why don't we talk about like why doesn't mainstream culture talk about movies anymore like why why don't we talk about what they mean and what what's actually going on in the text itself and why don't we focus on that before we get to the cultural culture war shit so yeah. and, and just 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 for our listeners, by the text, you mean like the cinematography of the film, or the script of the film. Yes, the work itself, basically. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know, the film itself. What you know, the elements of it. The cinematography is one of them. The directing, the writing. Uh, you know, for Last Jedi, it's like maybe you could talk about it within the context of Star Wars, and mm. but I, I, I was just exhausted with the way that. Uh, we we couldn't talk about you know Manchester by the Sea is my f- personal favorite favorite example of these because uh, a lot of the discussion around the time was this really self-flagellating discourse about how it's like oh you know it's about uh you know it's like a white working class person uh, suffering and it's like I I mean I guess but like the that's that feels uncharitable and does a disservice to the movie since the movie is about yeah. how it's kind of impossible to get over grief at some point and yeah. That like that that is something that is true no matter who you are. So I I think that I don't know it, and that's not this isn't to denigrate uh you know social analysis of stuff. I think that works like Manchester by the Sea and La La Land they do need uh cultural analysis. Like I think it is important to talk about the representation of jazz music and uh, black right. art in La La Land. But I I was tired of that discussion becoming the only thing that we talked about with regards to the movie to the point where it felt like we weren't even talking about the movie anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was going to, I was going to sort of um, impose that. Well, actually I don't even have to, cause you, you do that later on in your piece and you you do a really nice job of allowing for the possibilities of having those conversations, um, which hmm. it, this can be, a, it can be a tough thing like to wade into because like sometimes when you do like talk about, you know, or you wade into like circles of the internet where they're talking about like the issues they have with like, criticism of various like aspects of of the way that works treat like issues like race or gender or sexuality like Mm. you do sometimes kind of rub accidentally rub elbows with people who like just don't like believe those things should be talked about at all or who don't believe that there are any like societal evils and then you're suddenly you're like it's like you start off like talking like oh yeah i agree with what you're saying and then you hear them talk a little bit more and you're like oh no we we are not in agreement with this at all yes but what i like about your piece is that you allow for that and you make it very clear that it's like no we should be talking about this thing but we should be talking about it in addition to talking about it you know as the text talking about the text itself and like talking about the actual like filmic aspects of 
of of this movie um mm. which is a, a lot of times that doesn't even happen um yes. and then what you're left with is like well this movie shouldn't be talked about because it has poor politics which i want to talk about that a little bit more about like what that actually means and that's all there is to it when it's like well okay well maybe it does in some aspects or maybe it's not perfect in every single aspect but it also like is a good movie and like does other things really well not necessarily like yes and in in ways that make it understandable why people would come to these movies and why people enjoy them Mm. yes uh i i I, I definitely do not want to come across as a keep politics out of X, Y, and Z guy. I, I think that smart and thoughtful political analysis of art is necessary. And I think that looking through things through a political lens is very useful. And I will take a corny or overbearing political analysis of something over someone who flat refuses to engage with the sure. politics of anything period uh, that that the former is for its problems is it's a much more coherent and uh respectable worldview than the latter yeah yeah absolutely um pat what what, what was it about this piece that uh that that made it resonate with you or what's a thing i guess there, there's a lot there's a lot obviously but well i think we can are, are you are you a, do you know the podcast uh, Team Deacons Spencer? I do not know. It's a well for 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 our audience out there. Team Deacons is a podcast where Roger Deacons, the famous Oscar-winning award uh, cinematographer, interviews people in the business, and very rarely are they executives, and very rarely are they actors. They're craftspeople. Costume designers, sound designers, composers, gaffers, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the what I love about the podcast, and, and I came from a theater background in college, is like when you when you learn an art at a school or when you're learning it, you know, on on the job, so to speak, it's all about the craft and it's all about getting your hands dirty and it's all about making something. And what I loved so much about your piece is so much of movie mm, – what am I trying to say here? So much of the movie business now is we have the budget, which is here, and then we have the marketing budget, which is here. Mm. So it doesn't even matter if the movie is good or not because you have to take care of of the marketing budget. And even for streamers that like write directors blank checks, which I think is good, which I think is really good. But so many of those films are thrown up there for the quote unquote algorithm. There's this political discourse about them in the, in this, and then they're completely gone and totally forgotten. And, you know, this piece is really asking, like, what's going to stick? Like, what is actually going to stick? Mm-hmm. Like, Joker, the political discourse is the only thing that's stuck. Because yeah. if you see the movie, it's it's so okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is it's just not very good. so okay. You know, and like, what, what the fuck is actually going to stick here? Yeah. And... Well, so- that goes to... Um- uh, and I, you may have been talking about this with like some of the campaign, but like Oscar campaigns as well, like that mm. tends to play those up. Like it tends to like I'm I'm trying to think of like an example. The the example that comes to mind is um, the King's Speech, 
like i remember mm-hmm. like that campaign like it came from like like uh, essentially the movie it came from harvey yeah it came from harvey well yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's that but like also like the you know the movie is just like a pretty like straight ahead like biopic that like features like a person you know trying to overcome some sort of hurdle that they have um and like i remember the the like the phrase that like they used in like the marketing was like find your voice or something like that so like suddenly the film took on like a larger thematic resonance like this is like what this movie is about or that's like this is what this movie is saying essentially yep. um which just like totally changes it and raises the stakes of it. And th- that's actually kind of a bad example because like, that's not a, the stakes of that aren't particularly large, but some of this also does come from like, you know, choices that movie studios make and how they want to get butts in the seats because they know that people respond to movies that have like this larger historical societal thematic resonance, even if they really don't have that at the end of the day, it's just like a, perfectly fine movie or in some cases a perfectly not fine movie a good example of this type of phenomenon i think is um there's been a lot of there were a batch of marvel films that did something similar um captain marvel i always think of as one um let me be perfectly clear that i i don't like it when people imply that any female driven superhero film is like inherently cynical and you know Mm -hmm. trying to pander i think that's think that's reactionary nonsense and i think that uh you know captain marvel i don't wish to devalue you know any young people who saw captain marvel and were genuinely inspired by the representation but it does feel like something had shifted where films like um captain marvel or black panther again similar disclaimers apply i actually kind of like black panther um it does feel like the marketing to those and the way those films were presented and a lot of moments within the films themselves did feel like they were winking at the supposed, you know, historical nature of these movies. Mm-hmm. And it did feel like the films were supposed to all the, they wanted the discussion of the films to revolve around the discussion of the historical aspects of these. It wanted, they didn't want you to, they, as in uh, like Disney essentially. And, a lot of right. the commentariat um, didn't really want you to talk about Black Panther, the film or Captain Marvel, the film. They wanted you to talk about this is a huge leap forward for representation. This is a huge, you know, moment. It's like Black Panther smashed all these box off this records and it was a, a black led superhero film. And I think that's fantastic. I truly do. And I again, I my purpose here isn't to be, you know, in. Uh, reactionary shouting at clouds here about representation. <laughs> it's that I didn't like how discussion of um, discussion of these films was just about that. Because there right. is stuff within Black Panther to criticize, and there is stuff to appreciate beyond the the representation aspect. Uh, right. There is stuff to talk about within Captain Marvel beyond the uh, representation aspect and the um the gender aspect and if i can play devil's advocate for a second i think that a lot of people on the left kind of overdo the discussion of the mm-hmm. military's influence on these films because it is there and it is in its own way pernicious but i do think that there is more interesting things to talk about why marvel movies aren't very good without you know falling back on the moral reasoning of yeah. well it's military propaganda 
Yeah. Yeah. The Avengers are cops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, yes. I, I'd rather, I'd rather, I, I sort of made a, a glib statement to some of my friends where I was, uh, or a statement where I said the Marvel movies being military propaganda isn't even in the top 25 reasons why they're not very good. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's, it's funny because I, 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 when I read your piece and when I think about these issues, I, I feel myself sort of like complicit, like in, in, in all sides of this, like both as someone who like has gotten caught up in the discourse of certain movies and mm. that has made me enjoy the movies more than I probably should have. And then when I watch them again, I'm like, oh, this movie isn't particularly good. Yeah. Uh, Booksmart is a great example of that. Um, and then there are examples of, I'm sure there are examples where I get too caught up in more of like the leftist discourse about how this movie, like what it suggests about, you know, uh, capitalism or empire or, you know, the military industrial complex, all that kind of stuff. And definitely forget to also engage with it as, you know, a piece of art. Um, Hamilton is a great example of yes. something that both I and a lot of other people in leftist, you know, Marxist circles, like, get really upset about um you know um and currently and we'll talk about this maybe later on but currently this is happening uh to some degree with nomadland yes Um, nomadland i have not seen nomadland yet but i i don't know what i will think of it i'm not familiar with uh chloe zhao's work but i i i was getting tired of watching from the sidelines seeing people (laughs) exchange like hyperbole about how bad the film was like going like no it's the worst thing ever made it's right practically and right. it's practically the reason why amazon is so evil like it i i was talking <laughs> with a friend about it and we were just like can't this movie just be not very good and then we can just move on yeah like it's yeah. just a, as, it's, yeah it seems like an oscar bait movie. as if just any movie has the the power to topple amazon <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> right as if any movie can can force us all to stop ordering things from prime yeah like, my right. uh uh friend and person who I think deserves a ton of credit for making this piece like coherent. My friend, uh, Forrest Cardamenis, who is one of the smartest film people I know had a great tweet about Nomadland who he said that D- Amazon stuff in uh, Nomadland, you could cut it all out. The movie still would not be very good. So <laughs> that is not the, that is yeah. not the official uh, stance of John LeMay. Let's just get that on record. I'm a, I'm a, I write, yeah, no, I write for I, Nomadland. It's not my stance either. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. So, but the well, point stands is that's... that, uh, no, you're absolutely right. And it, a lot of this does come from, like, everything just being so, in, as it pertains to discourse, because what we're talking about is is just discourse writ large, whether it pertain, pertains to um, movies or music or literature. I'm, I'm unfortunately privy to a lot of discourse that happens in literary Twitter. Um, I'm not. Which is, yeah, every bit as deplorable and, and terrible a place as you would expect it to be. I, I get, I get uh, inklings of that, and it, it feels like I'm hearing the music of Eric Zahn points in my windows whenever i see like yeah. glimpses into literary twitter yeah that that about captures it um but yeah i mean essentially everything just becomes so catastrophized like everything is an example of some larger societal cultural artistic phenomenon that we don't like it never can be that it's just like oh no this isn't very good yes and sometimes it can be not very good and also it contributes to this larger thing but you have a hard time winning people over if you're just jumping to that other thing like if you're just if you're just talking to how it's how it's, it happens to be indicative of everything i hate um 
without ever like talking about how it functions as like a piece of art as well or being able to acknowledge like hey it, it works totally fine as a piece of art but i don't like it because it reminds me of this other thing like i don't i don't have any issue with that in and of mm. itself provided that you like provide that disclaimer to some degree and, and might also say hey yeah. I just don't like this movie, and that might be a me thing. It might be something that I'm going to talk about with my therapist this week. Um, but like, also, if you want to, if you want to enjoy the movie, that's fine. I'm not going to incriminate you and suggest slyly that you're a bad person or that the only reason you're able to like this is because you have bad politics. I I had a similar Listen. experience with uh, the movie Hustlers, actually, where I watched oh. it and I didn't like it, but I couldn't tell whether or not me not liking it was too wrapped up in my own personal problems I have with a lot of uh, fake empowerment culture and just some mm -hmm. personal experiences that have happened to me, but I, uh, I couldn't yeah. really tell. So I just kind of let it's like, don't like it. Not my thing. You can have it if you want yeah. to. Yeah. Spencer wasn't sure if, if, if his issues with the movie had to do with that summer that a group of strippers stole $5 million <laughs> from his uh, checking account. Yeah. It's very annoying when that happens. Look, happens to the best of us. Yeah. Um, in my case, yeah. it was five dollars, all I had in my checking account, but it still sucks. It still sucks. Yeah. Um, and in my case, I say, support Pat? sex workers. So um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> right. that's, yeah. That's the official stance of half of Pat and John and their best behavior. Apparently. Well, yeah. I also see an issue where people just don't know how to talk about the text of the film. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad like, you said that. Yeah. They don't. Where would they get that? Like, where yeah. do people not in the know, where would they learn how to do that? Mm. So the easiest thing is just to say, once upon a time in Hollywood, bad. Right, right. Anna Paquin yeah, and the Irishman. sexism. Yeah, Anna Paquin yeah. and the Irishman. Not enough. <laughs> right, right. Once upon a time in Hollywood, in Hollywood and the Irishman are good examples, I think, because they are films that... I think to or in order to properly articulate whether or not you like or dislike them, you need to sort of have a historical context of Hollywood for both of them. The Irishman yeah. makes a lot of visual and thematic allusions to Scorsese's own mob movies and uh, mob movies in general, like The Godfather and uh, what is it? Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that movie is very very tied to tarantino's own personal preoccupations which is i i think that for me at least my read on him is that his pet theme has always been uh cinema as wish fulfillment and that mm. i think is very much in once upon a time in hollywood and i i think it's also him trying to reflect on change in film culture and cultural in general around that time and i think that if you lack the historical and film historical knowledge to talk about those things in the movies you and you don't like them and again don't have that knowledge don't like them all good uh, none of my business but sure. uh, when you see a lot of people who just quite bluntly haven't put the reading in and haven't put the watching in talk about those movies and trying to pan them it really does feel like they're just grasping at you know the only the only thing that we talk about anymore and it's like well it's sexist because Anna Paquin doesn't get in many lines or it's sexist because, uh, you know, there's violence against women in the movie. And right. whether or not you agree with those things, again, I, I think the Irishman complaint's a little ridiculous, personally. I, I think that yeah. in order to understand why some of the decisions that are, are being made in these movies, uh, you kind of have to put in some homework. 
and it makes the movies more rewarding if you have. But if you haven't, it can make you embarrass yourself if you're trying to pan them. Right. And and, and you express this, uh, I think, really really well um, in in two pieces of your of or two um, sections from your piece, which I'm gonna which I'm gonna read. Um, mm. uh, this is this is where you're talking about sort of like the the way in which like um, you know this is what you're saying to some degree is a reflection of a lot of like online discourse, like just things that happen like with people who have like people like me who have very few followers on Twitter or something like that. But you also make mm. a point that like this extends beyond that and it has actually like sort of worked its way into film criticism. So this is what you say. Um, one can't expect much out of hordes of idiots online, but one would hope that critics who should be driven by a deep appreciation for the cinematic arts could wade through that nonsense and deal with the text itself. And then another uh, really great sentence. Um, Combine this downward trend in critical writing with a shrinking interest in history and theory of cinema, and you're left with a critical landscape that understands what it's supposed to like without ever understanding why. Mm. Which I think really gets at these two different, or the, 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 which I think really gets at this phenomenon. And like, it can be hard to talk about this stuff because you can sound like you're essentially saying like, you know, you have no right to weigh in on, you know, uh, on any of this stuff if you haven't seen like every Truffaut or Kurosawa film right yeah. like the, no one likes to be the gatekeeper in these conversations but it's yeah. different than being like not hey. no one <laughs> yeah right <laughs> everyone except for Pat Stanley is not saying this um but but it, it but it's a matter of being like no you don't like you don't need I myself like I have seen a lot of movies but I don't I don't know nearly as much about like film history as like someone like Pat does or probably someone like you does Spencer but like I've seen an old movie and like have seen like, you know, a couple movies by like Billy Wilder or like John Huston or whatever. And like have seen a black and white movie that isn't like a scene in a 90s family, you know, movie that is meant to indicate that it's like a memory or is taking place in the olden times or something like that. Like that Mm -hmm. makes a difference because sometimes you have to have seen a black and white movie to understand what is going on in this movie. Um, And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like when you don't have that. I think a lot of this t- tends to come from like a place of insecurity of being like I should be able to say something about this movie because I took it I took it in I was able to like enjoy it with some of my senses and you know I should have some sort of response to it and I do have a response to it and this is why I have that response and it's not grounded in anything about the film itself it's grounded in some of these larger you know theoretical things that that can be reinforced by certain aspects of the like filmic choices, but are also different than that and, and need to be dealt with in a different sort of like sphere. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you brought up this uh, subject because this, this lack of a uh, historical knowledge, it, I, I want to once again, thank Forrest for uh, reminding me of this uh, when I was writing this, that, uh, the lack of historical knowledge, it really rears its ugly head um, when you see certain buzzwords and phrases come up in reviews of these films. Like, again, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, a lot of the reviews of the film and a lot of the uh, both the marketing and the reviews uh, build it as sort of a throwback to 70s paranoia thrillers like The Parallax mm-hmm. View, All the President's Men, and... Um, like this is technically 80s but blowout uh conversation etc but um it 
it, it, you really only have to like think about it for more than you have to just like watch one of those movies to realize that this comparison doesn't hold up any, any well since <laughs> 70s paranoia thrillers for one they came from a very specific part of american history and that specific part of american history like bleeds through every frame of those movies and two it's yeah, that but, but yeah Oh, sorry. I mean, Kevin Feige knows that no one is actually going to watch the Parallax yes. View. He knows yes. that. He yes. knows and that. If, if you haven't seen the Parallax View and you haven't seen stuff like The Conversation and um, films like Point Blank and Blowout, then you, you, you can just hear that it's like, oh, it's like a 70s paranoia thriller. And you'll just assume that because of a few surface level details this comparison is sound and makes sense. So then you can write in your review for uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. You know, it's a throwback to classic thrillers from the 70s when, like, you know, if you've seen any of those movies, it's it's a real problem, especially, like, with independent films when they get compared to John Cassavetes where they're just like, oh, it's Cassavetes-esque because people yell <laughs> in it. And then you, you you watch, like, a Cassavetes film and they are... Yeah, or there, or there was one ad-libbed line. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're, there's, like, these rich, like, deeply humane films about, you know, like, how difficult it is to be a human being. And then you just see a movie that has, like, quasi-ad-libbed, uh, shouty performances <laughs> in it, and people will compare it to Cassavetes. And it's a, it's always just, like, so, so embarrassing. Yeah. Well, and you – oh, sorry, were you going to say something else, Pat? I was going to go another phrase that I, I despise in modern criticism. But you, you first, Sean, you first. No, you should go first because mine's kind of different. It, it's, it uses what he just says as a jumping off point, but but you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it's the movie we need right now. Yes. yes. It's That's the movie actually, we need okay. right now. So that, um, that, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned the piece about Moonlight, how... That's exactly what I was going to say. Wow, God, year of podcasting, and here we are. Just here, the mind meld is Telekinesis, complete. man. It's complete. Um, awful, awful. Well, actually, I, I, you talk about Moonlight. I'll talk about a movie that came out recently, Borat okay. 2. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I like many people, grew up watching the first the, – the first Borat was kind of like uh, – a major milestone in my life as for quoting <laughs> uh, uh, terrible accent work right, and right. Um, general buffoonery. And <laughs> I was a huge uh, Ali G fan as well. And the, the Borat two came out this year and I thought it was so interesting. I read a lot of reviews, which was a mistake <laughs> before mistake. I saw the, the, the movie. <laughs> um, I got a screener for the movie and everyone was saying it's like the perfect antidote to the end of the Trump era. <laughs> like, well, actually, I, I think the ele- it would, this was still before the election, but it was kind of like the perfect antidote to like the toxic masculinity of the first Borat, as if like people were patting themselves on the back for watching the quote-unquote bad Borat of 2006. Hmm. And now that there yeah. is a, a a female character who's, who's you know, the, the sort of co-lead with Sasha Baron Cohen, that, like, Borat has sort of righted the mistakes of his, of the, you know, 14-year period that that movie's been around. Right. Now, that but it, also, now that it's come out in a time when things are actually bad. Yeah, but also, yeah. it's not funny. The yeah. movie is not funny. 
and and the the but all the reviews were like, oh, this is such a great new turn for Sasha Baron Cohen, <laughs> and it shows a totally different side to him. And and I will say the the um, Maria Bakal, I'm not even going to attempt her. Bakalova, she's tremendous, and she of course she's very talented, and I have no doubt in my mind that she's going to have a long and great career. But the yeah, movie come on the so, podcast. The movie, yeah, <laughs> we'll behave. Um, <laughs> the movie is not funny at all, and no review actually talked about the bits, the bits themselves. It was talking about the Rudy Giuliani bit, and that's it. Yeah, there. I, and I was oh, just really, fr- it was just really frustrating. It was like, guys, this is like he never would have made this in two thousand six. Like, this wouldn't have even come across his fucking radar as for, like, bits, sketches, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. What were we going to say, I, Spencer? I I wrote a little bit about Borat 2 on Letterboxd. Um, it's not like a polished review or anything. It was just some notes that I had typed out when I watched it. And, yeah, it's uh, it's not very funny. Um, I left a couple of times, but uh, it, it it is definitely... It, it, it definitely took all the wrong lessons from uh, discussions about Borat and the Trump era, too. I mean, there's a long conversation to be had about how comedy during the Trump era just didn't work because, like, unlike George <laughs> W. Bush, you can't really mock a guy who is just this flagrant about his narcissism and his evil. But, um, yeah, I, I, I Borat, too, really wanted to position itself like a real movie, and it wanted to... You know, tackle like I wanted to seriously tackle some issues because, you know, a lot of discussion about Borat does talk about how the first one, it does talk about how the film sort of reflects how the U.S. views Middle Easterners and how um, it sort of purposefully explodes a lot of um, xenophobic tropes in order to shine a light on how ridiculous they are. And also to point out how ghoulish uh, America is in this specific point in time. But, like, I, I'm stealing this phrase from another critic. I think he was talking about um, Blade Runner 20, uh, 2049, but it feels like an adaptation of critical essays about Borat. The second one does. <laughs> it, um, it, it feels like, uh, it really does feel like they wanted to, the only thing that they took away from why people like Borat is the, you know, commentary on the U.S. And it's like, well, let's just do that. And we also need right. some female empowerment messages and we need messages about trump and xenophobia and russia so we're just going to throw this all in there and you know maybe we'll have a couple of funny bits in there if if we get time that's so interesting because it's like a weird game of like telephone where it's like yeah you're right it's like it's is a an adaptation or a response to critical essays that also aren't actually grounded in any sort of like understanding of like the medium in which the film is being made it's just like these essays that are being like you know i have nothing inherently against like uh like media studies departments like in and of themselves or media studies classes like i think people are able to go through those and like also supplement that with like actually taking classes in like the art forms they're writing about but like as just sort of like a grab bag of all these different lenses of talking about like 
media, like I think it can actually be incredibly harmful because what you get, what you come away with is an ability to write about art it through these lenses or talk about anything through these lenses, yeah. looking at it through a gender lens or a racial lens or Marxist lens, but you, you don't know how to do that responsibly. I actually, so I, listeners of this podcast will know, I, before um, going to grad school, I was an English teacher and I actually had an idea to come uh, to, um, to teach as a senior seminar, um, a class on literary theory. And I was really excited about that, of just going through and just saying like, hey, if you want to talk about something through like uh, like a race, a lens of like racial theory, like this is how you do that. If you want to do it through gender theory or queer theory or Marxist theory. And I was really excited about that. Now on the other side of it, I don't think that I would ever actually teach that course because I feel like that that would be some sort of like, Pat, block your ears some sort of like pedagogical malpractice to some degree of just like Mm. equipping people to like talk about these things but to not actually be able to say like hey there's a time and a place to you know implement these theories and talk about things in these particular ways yeah i i agree i think um a lot of my a lot of my uh thoughts for this piece came from a dear friend of mine who uh, is one of the smartest people i know he is a uh recently graduated literary student and he is a bit more conservative than me and he talked a lot about his his disgust towards the way people disregard the aesthetic um the aesthetic importance of a work and Mm -hmm. he says that it happens a lot when he's in school and he sees it a lot online too where people will talk about writers like plato or faulkner or ezra pound or authors who had repellent worldviews but you know it's important to discuss the aesthetic and literary qualities of their work and chucking that out just because you you know it's fine if you don't feel comfortable reading Faulkner because of his views on segregation but if you're going to engage with Faulkner's work um then you you know you should he was like you should really focus on the aesthetic qualities of it too that's an important thing to consider and I, I couldn't agree more. I, yeah. um, I'm yeah. not a literary scholar myself, but I, I do think that when you are talking about, you know, films from right-wing filmmakers, like I think uh, one of the most interesting filmmakers right now is S. Craig Zahler, who is like almost indisputably a somewhat reactionary <laughs> filmmaker, but he, uh, mm-hmm. he makes really interesting exploitation fare. And I think that the kind of blunt way he deals with topics such as race or um you know class warfare essentially they are can be fairly repulsive but i do think that he is a filmmaker of aesthetic and even intellectual merit at points and i do yeah. dislike when people are like well you know dragged across concrete's about cops so we can just toss the whole thing out or brawl in cell black 99 the character says some racist thing main character says some racist things and he has some heartland signifiers so we can toss the movie out right right mm-hmm. God, there's so there's so much to talk about here. Um, I'm I'm trying to prioritize everything. So okay, yeah, something really quick, and then I'll get back to Moonlight. But uh, yeah, what you just said is, I think resonates with me because I think when you have these conversations, a lot of times people don't necessarily distinguish between a movie being like about something and a movie also like having a message about something. Mm. And I find that that is like a conversation that I can. I will oftentimes have or will want to have with people who talk about art, especially, and God, I mean, everything I'm saying, like, I feel like I sound like such a snob and, and such like a, a, 
uh, I don't know, an asshole. But at I guess some that's... point, I just leaned into being kind of a snobbish dick. I guess that's what you have to do. Yeah, I should yeah. maybe practice that to some degree. But yeah, John, forty-five episodes in, all of a sudden, he's, <laughs> yeah, finally, he, he's the I'm shy girl at the dance. Yeah. Jesus, I, I, I have to counterbalance my snobbishness uh, by having a podcast about Family Guy. So sure, right? Yeah, yeah. fair. But I mean. Sometimes I can tell when, like, people who have these conversations, like, don't actually, like, make shit of their own. Because, like, I mm. think if you have conversations, conversations with people who do make stuff, who, like, do create art, you learn pretty quickly that, like, most people don't actually have a message they're trying to convey. Some do. There's absolutely political art. There's absolutely art that is informed by a very acute ideological bent or whatever. But, yeah. like... Most of it isn't like that. And oftentimes we make the mistake of assuming like, hey, this is like, this must be the message that this person was trying to, you know, suggest about a great example we've talked about on this podcast is Phantom Thread, um, which maybe we don't want to get it too too deep into. But, you know, there there is a, a lot of folks who feel that like that movie is essentially it's essentially like a uh, a a a what's what I'm looking for. But it romanticizes um, abuse. Is... Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it's like yeah. a vehicle for toxic masculinity. Yeah, and like, mm-hmm. what, what, what's what's a commercial like? Those types of com- an infomercial for toxic masculinity, uh, yeah. because they're assuming that like you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson must have had a message that he was trying to convey, like a very clear one sentence message that he was trying to convey. And I, I'm being slightly, you know, uh, reductionist to some degree here, but that's like the sense that I get. And like a lot of times, art just doesn't have that sense of message to it like it doesn't come from being like all right what is the theme that it's not a, it's not one of aesop's fables right like it yeah. can't it's not slow and steady wins the race it's something about it's just like it's about this thing and is exploring like the nuances of this area um, spencer I, I i have to say something really quickly i'm so sorry i know you want to speak i've read i i stalked your letterbox today mm. and i read your review of promising young woman and what John just said there about like, what's the message? What's the meaning? Let's just get back to the meaning. What is he actually trying to say here? Your note about screenwriting professors, of which I have had a few, in that they always say, what's the message here? What does the character want? And it's just like, I don't know, motherfucker. How about we finish the goddamn scene? And right. just I don't know figure what I this want fucking the out. The... You know, and I thought yes, you were so you were so on the money with that because when this stuff is intellectualized also to the point of zero, it takes all of the kind of like gut instinct and heart and spirit that all great artists possess. You know, I don't think uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, when he was roaming uh, a, a nuclear plant in southern Russia, was thinking, was was breaking it all down, like, beat by beat for, for each character. Yeah, or, right. like, again, you know, to circle back to Cassavetes, since he's one of the great American filmmakers, I think that what makes part of his movies so great is that his what his characters want in every scene isn't always very clear, and like with real people, there's conflicting emotions and desires. Like A Woman Under the Influence, probably his greatest work, one of the most tragic elements about it is the way that uh, the abusive husband in that movie, played by Peter Falk, he does seem to genuinely love and care about his wife, but he's not sure how, and he doesn't know how to handle that, especially around other people, and it manifests as abuse. Mm -hmm. And there's inherent contradictions in the way he acts around his wife and around his kids. And it's 
really heartbreaking to watch. And it's why it's one of the best films ever made. And I think that, you know, trying to, uh, trying to boil films down or especially characters down to like a simple motivation and boil films down to Mm. a simple theme. Like again, going back to a woman under the influence, the theme of that movie isn't just a simple abuse is bad or listen to your wife. It's a lot more slippery and uh, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think that, which isn't to say that there are any needed complications on the phrase abuse is bad, but the film, the film does seek to, right explore more than just a blanket condemnation of abusive behavior. And it's right. Um, yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with you there. I, I have really grown an allergy towards like screenwriting class mindset of that. <laughs> everything has to have this utilitarian function within mm. a movie or a script and everything has to be easily explainable and it has to fit into this paradigm. And, you know, you really only have to just, you don't have to go too far back into film history or don't have to go far away from the United States to find out that what we've imposed in the three act structure, like trying to make every film be Chinatown, but with a happy ending is probably a bad idea. <laughs> mm. yeah. It's like that, that guy, Robert McKee probably is probably has, he has done more damage, I think to screenplays than <laughs> anyone ever, you know, a guy that never like yeah. God had one screenplay produced. For for people who don't know, Robert yeah. McKee wrote a book on screenplay screenwriting, and he did uh, you know a gazillion seminars, and his book is cited in like every blah 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 blah. And I recently, because I I was in a, a program and I, I dropped out of it, and the one of the well, the classes I was taking was in screenwriting for video games, and the teacher kept harking back to McKee, and I was just like, I I gotta get out of here, yeah, I gotta I- run. I gotta I, run. I, I if 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 I'm learning from a guy who never sold one screenplay, like that's that's not a good <laughs> teacher. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh. So. Uh. I guess. Do you want to continue on to Moonlight, or do you all have anything <laughs> else you want to say? Yeah. God. No. We we only we only have we have less than three hours. So yes. Yeah. We should. Um. So yeah. So I I think because it's important to note that like yes, it's absolutely true that like sometimes this type of discourse is harmful to movies because like it, I don't know, it, 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 it causes people to like dislike them when they shouldn't necessarily like them. Like I think Manchester by the sea is a really great example and La La Land is another great example, or at least it causes them to dislike them for the wrong reasons, only the wrong reasons. Um, but you make a good point that it can also like place unnecessary or unfortunate onus, like on really wonderful movies as having to be, emblematic of everything everything yeah Yeah. they have to do everything and be everything i wish i just quoted him directly but cam collins who is probably the best working critic right now talked about moonlight and he said that i i wanted when moonlight came out i just wanted to enjoy it and let it be itself before it became eating your woke veggies (laughs) yeah yeah, that's that's a really great way of putting it. Yeah, because it's yeah. um, I mean, you you say this in the piece. I'll just read the section of the piece because um, again, it's it's just so great. On the flip side, Moonlight was venerated in publications such as the Boston Globe as a rebuke to our era of hate, suggesting that the Trump administration helped the film quote blossom into a much needed meditation on diversity, inclusion, and how its absence can lead to ruin unquote, which does a considerable disservice to the film proper which needn't be representative of our times to be terrific. Yes. Moonlight is a very good film, and uh, its follow-up 
if Beale Street could talk, uh, the Baldwin adaptation is even better. It's so good. And I, um, I, I really do think that trying to specifically tie these moments, since Moonlight is not a story that's just about the Trump era. It is a, it is a much more, I don't want to say universal, but it is a story that is less tied to any specific moment in time generally and yeah I, I think that trying to make this really these two you know moonlight and if Beale street can talk these two really important films and these genuinely really impressive pieces of art um trying to specifically tie them down to this one moment and make them you know sort of this antidote to your own personal neuroses about the trump era does like it's <laughs> honestly worse than just outright disliking them it's uh it you're not really dealing with the film at all and i think that it's more interesting to talk about these stories in a more historical context and uh a social context that just isn't limited to discourse and what you read in the new york times this morning yeah yeah and also how it's just an example of really phenomenal filmmaking or screenwriting or adaptation Um, uh never once did i see much of a comparisons to moonlight to barry jenkins clear infatuation with wong kar wai and how he basically just i don't want to say well he, that, he that was all <laughs> yeah that Go was ahead. only for people in the know you know the side yeah. by side the frame by frames with like uh fallen angels and in the mood for love and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. No, but no i remember um uh when i uh i saw moonlight for the first time in high school i wasn't that knowledgeable about movies and i saw clips of it in class again after I saw it and I had seen some Wong Kar Wai movies and I'm like, holy shit, this guy, this guy loves Wong Kar Wai and is just, and you know, one of my favorite Barry Jenkins clips is him in on the uh, Criterion Current, just talking about how much he loves like in the mood for love and stuff. Mm, yeah, and, and uh, that's not a dis, dis, dismiss him by the way, you know, Wong Kar Wai is not making any fucking movies now. And right. we, mm. I, you know, if anyone is going to take lessons from Wong Kar Wai, someone who can do it well, I, really do appreciate that so and i'm really excited to see him pay homage to him and uh in the, in the <laughs> sequel to the lion king too <laughs> really can't wait for that uh uh it is uh but on the subject so of of barry jenkins like the, it's another way in which discourse can totally warp the way that we engage with movies um pat do you want to do you want to share this anecdote yeah so um <laughs> my ex-girlfriend um drink <laughs> she I we if Beale Street could talk was on Hulu and I was like oh I missed it in theaters and I was like oh would you like to watch this and she said oh no she's South Asian and she said oh no me and my cousin we went to the movie and we left in we left uh within the first five minutes because we just knew that white people loved this movie (laughs) I was like like, that's so (laughs) funny like because it's like because we assume like that a movie like if Beale Street could talk like all the white critics would fawn over it as a, a beacon for uh, representation and diversity and um, uh, yeah. which, which all those things are, are are wonderful on their own. But like, again, the that ideology like made her and her cousin leave within the first five right. minutes which... because she's like she's like, oh, this is just something that like white people say that they like to not seem racist it's it's funny that you say that because that did not happen with the beale street could talk no one cared <laughs> yeah. about that movie right right yes that is true yeah but it was like it it reminded 
a person of a type of movie that they don't like, which is like the epitome of discourse, right? It's like, I don't like this movie because of the movie. It's because it reminded me of something or someone or a particular strain within, you know, film. film And that's the the Snyder cut. That's why people hate the idea of the Snyder cut because they're like, oh, this is just an incel thing. Like, you know what I mean? They won. They got their, their cut of the movie. And Pat's like, um, excuse me, we have names, you know. <laughs> the or no, I mean, with with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman, it is very clear when people didn't like the movie because it reminded them of some annoying boyfriend they had or some annoying right. dude in screenwriting class. And right. it, we see you, kings. Yeah, and like, look, I, I I've been around plenty of annoying people, and I have to work overtime to not develop sure. grudges against movies because they remind me of people I dislike. Yeah. But like. It, I, I, so I get the impulse. It's human to be a catty little bitch about things and just want to <laughs> just want to yeah. lash out in like your own ways. And you know, if 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 Beale Street could talk reminds you of like people who say like, if it reminds you of the parents from Get Out, I'm not gonna fault you, even though I think that movie's terrific. Right. Um, right. I uh, I still um, but I still think that it does a disservice to just look away for or like just dismiss blanket really important works of art just because not even because of like the content of it itself um but because it really reminds you of someone who might like this who might suck yeah right right yeah and i mean like you know we'll 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 wrap it up here pretty soon but i I understand why people do this you know i think that some people definitely do this in good faith because i think that some people just like you know as we're seeing right now, as like things are starting to open up and people are starting to get facts, like you see people, you know, hordes of people continuing to be very tut tutty about, you know, still not going outside and, and stuff like that. Flatten and it, the it's, curve. Yeah, it's, it, it's still very, it's, it's very clear that like some people do these things because they like having rules and they like following rules and making people feel, feel bad for not following the rules or having tastes they deem to be lesser than for some reason. But I think yeah. it comes from a good place for some. Like I actually recently ish saw a film critic i think for i won't i won't say who it where they were from but they were from like a major a major like film um like publication website or entertainment publication website and they were tweeting about some sort of article that made a pretty like clear case for the uh for birth of a nation the dw the dw griffith version not the more recent one and how like you can pretty easily tie that to like a rise in you know, the KKK activity and a rise in lynchings and stuff like that. And they pretty much were saying, like, this is why it's important to talk about art and, like, the things that inform it and the movements that it causes, which I think is absolutely true. But the problem is that that is what also that that strain and that that worldview or that lens of, like, looking at movies can also cause people to freak out about whether or not the Joker is going to cause a wave of mass shootings at movie theaters and mm-hmm. how it's going to like give a rise to the incel takeover of, and, you know, Times Square. Yeah, It's, you know, also again, uh, birth of a nation is, you know, it's a very, a very specific historical event too. And I think that, yeah, that within that comparison between birth of the nation, um, you know, trying to insinuate that, release the Snyder Cut nerds are the same thing as the fucking Ku Klux right, Klan is a sure. little ridiculous. And I think right. that you, it's, again, an example of, like, catastrophizing where you can't sure. you can't just be like, yeah, these nerds that don't like The Last Jedi, they kind of suck. Um, right, 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 or, right. Yeah, it's like annoying. it has to be like they are they are literally doing uh, gangland-style harassment. And right, 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 just, right. Uh, 
Yeah, no, it, it is. I think that, I think, and again, con contextualizing uh, films, again, I have, I argue for that a lot. I think that, uh, a, you know, again, with The Irishman, I think a crucial part of understanding The Irishman is contextualizing it within mob movie history and the reaction it has had. And, uh, but I, I do think that, the the metatext cannot be and the intertextual elements cannot be the only thing that you discuss it cannot be the sole lens to view something yeah you you can't look at films just through that cultural aspect even if the cultural aspect does have demonstrable real world horrors tied to it sure yeah yeah absolutely um awesome well we can we can wrap it up here unless you have mm. anything else you wanted to no, I uh, cool. I think uh, I'm glad you two liked the piece. I'm glad uh, as many people, it took off a lot more than I was expecting. And yeah. to uh, anyone who read it and liked it, I am very very happy. This took actually took a decent amount of work in revising. And I wanted to thank <laughs> uh, uh, Forrest Cardamenis, uh, Josh Masitti, and the editors at Negation Magazine for and Esther Rosenfield, my co-host, for uh, for helping uh, me shape this piece into something that was from lunatic ravings into something more <laughs> coherent and um I, I i am really really deeply thankful to anyone who like reads my stuff and checks out my podcast and stuff i i really do appreciate uh it's still so bizarre to me that people like <laughs> read my stuff so thank you very much yeah yeah oh, of course you, and 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 we'll um we'll we will include a link to the piece, Reject Discourse, Revitalize Cinema, which you can read in Negation Magazine. Um, and yeah, where, where else can people find you um, on the inter the interwebs and uh, and the stuff that you create? Um, if you'd like I to find me... I can't believe I just said interwebs. My God. My <laughs> God. Maybe the most cringy thing I've said. Uh, okay, <laughs> boomer. <laughs> so I did a thing. Um, the, you can find me on Letterboxd. Uh, Letterboxd is still... I think I might change this at some point, but the Letterboxd, it's the... My old Twitter handle, the Lonely Photon. Um, what is it? You can find me on Letterboxd there to find some unpolished thoughts about movies and jokes. Um, I occasionally put up some like longer pieces on my Medium page. I haven't done that in a little while since I've been quite busy with work and podcasting. If you are interested in hearing me talk at length more um, about less serious things generally, but if you're at all interested in my take on bad TV and maybe occasionally something more serious than uh, check out those good old fashioned values and get cynical. My two podcasts where we talk about uh ridiculous, uh, ridiculous, bad comedy. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, we will include uh, links to all of those in, in the show notes. Yeah. Um, you got anything, Pat? Nothing. <laughs> uh Follow us on follow us on Instagram. Rate and review the podcast. Um, rate and review Spencer's podcasts as well. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us, Spencer. This was uh, this was very nice. Very, very nice. nice. <laughs> <laughs> My wife. All right. Bye, guys. Oh, and guys, guys, guys. John was doing the impression of Borat from 2020, yeah, yeah. not yeah, the yeah, impression yeah. of Borat from 2006. Clear. Yeah, I have standards. I have standards. All right. Bye, y'all.